This is episode number 135 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell, and I am joined by the most special guest today, Raina Boston, a friend of mine. In real life, we have met one time, but on the internet, we have been friends for a long time, and I am just so excited to introduce you to Raina. So, Raina, welcome. Thank you for being here on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Dreams do come true. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about all the things, motherhood, marriage, being a working mom, a working parent, however you might identify, and all the messy stuff that goes along with that. So before we jump in, can you just tell us about yourself? Who are you? Who is Raina? Sure. So I am 32. I live right outside of Tampa, Florida, near St. Pete, um, close to the beach. I am a working mom. I have two boys. They are currently, hold on, let me think about this, mom of the year, three and four. So they are 20 months apart. Um, It is as ridiculous and absurd as it sounds. (laughs) Uh, I work full time in HR, but my passion project is something called the Working Mantras. And it is just a community for working moms. And when I say working moms, all moms work to come together and talk about what it is, what does motherhood mean? How can we get through what sometimes feels like a slog, what sometimes is all joy and no fun. Um, And so every week I post a mantra, which is a mantra, to get us through the week and I share stories that connect back. Um, And my comment section has become a really fun place to talk through all of those different things. Yeah, I love it. I love your writing. It's so beautiful and the realest of the real writing about motherhood that I often see. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So I actually was a journalism major in college and I thought writing was going to look one way for me. I graduated from college in 2010, which was right after the economy blew up and journalism changed forever. Magazines that I wanted to write for were folding. um, So I had to figure out something else. And I ended up working in campus recruiting um, and working in higher ed. And then I made a pivot. Um, I wanted to do campus recruiting for companies because you get paid more than in higher ed. Um, And then I made another pivot and started working in HR. So I really kind of lost my love for writing. I did freelance for a while, but I realized in journalism, you're doing a lot of talking to people who don't necessarily want to be talked to. (laughs) So like, 
for example, one time I covered a neighborhood was getting speed bumps installed and people were losing their damn minds. Like I'm in a school cafeteria, which is where they had this meeting. And so you've got like the older established, like wealthy people. And then the people who are younger, who've moved into this neighborhood to like get their kids into good schools. And they, you know, they're just making it. They're living in this neighborhood. They're not established. And so they want the speed bumps because kids and the older people are like, these are eyesores. So people are just going at it. And I'm like, whew, this is some negative energy all about some damn speed bumps like I don't know that journalism is the career for me if I and as we can see it's just gotten worse um so I really I stopped writing for a long time but around the time I turned 31 I like I had a spiritual awakening and I just started writing through some shit and it has evolved into the working mantras Incredible. Okay, let's dive into that because the working mantras is new. How long have you even been writing on that page for? I started it on Martin Luther King Day 2020. So January. Yeah. So meaningful in so many ways for you. So tell us about that spiritual awakening at 31. What went down? What happened through that time period and how did it lead you to this, where you are now? So in 2016, I, my life really blew up in a lot of ways. Um, I was living with undiagnosed postpartum depression. And honestly, like, I don't want to say it's my fault, but I was like, here's the postpartum depression screen. I really don't want to be diagnosed with this because like, I don't want to be a burden on people around me. And like, what does that even mean? So I'm going to lie on this test. (laughs) My husband was looking on like, oh, like, I don't think that's really the right answer to that question, but I don't want to step on your toes. So, you know, instead of getting help, I was like, okay, well, I am increasingly anxious when my husband goes to work or the gym, which is across the street from my house and people leave and I need to just busy myself. So I was like, okay, well, we live in this little condo that we're renting. We need to get a house and I need to get it in my dream neighborhood. So like I dove like into buying a house, like pretty much on my own while my husband was at work. And um, so we move into this house in my dream neighborhood and it quickly turns into a nightmare. Like every major system in the house broke in the first year. And then while I was on maternity leave, which was, I was out for maybe four months, three, somewhere between three and four months. I can't remember now, but I was like, well, if I'm going to have a job, because I was working in higher ed doing campus recruiting for a school, I was like, well, I need to pivot and like, I need to make it worth my while to be away from my son. So I (laughs) found a job doing campus recruiting for an accounting firm and it was absolutely fucking miserable. Um, like I realized like the first day that I started that it was a mistake. Um, they were, I said to HR right before I started, cause I didn't tell them on my interviews that I had a baby because it's none of their damn business. And I said to HR, I'm going to need a place to pump because, you know, they're one of these companies that is ranked very highly and parent friendly, mom friendly, 100 best places for moms to work. And 
it was like a struggle. Like the office I was working in did not have a room to pump. So I'd have to go into other people's offices, like hope the window washers weren't there as I'm expressing milk. Um, but, but, um, the first day I started, my boss was said to me, she's just like, I didn't know that you had kids. And I knew immediately the implication was not good. Um, so I had a pretty fairly miserable work situation. It just kind of deteriorated from there. Um, and I, my anxiety and depression were just spiking and spiraling and I didn't know what to do. Um, and meanwhile, like my AC is breaking at my house. The plumbing is going haywire. Is that a roof leak? Like all of these things are happening. Um, and so anyway, long story short, I end up, ended up leaving that job in a couple weeks later. Maybe, well, I guess a month later, my dad just passed away, like unexpectedly. Um, and so that was the beginning of the spiritual awakening because I had to dig myself out from a pretty rough place, like start therapy, like deal with some of this stuff. And I think I halfway dealt with it. But as I moved into another job and then like moved into a, another job after that, while I was like interviewing seven months pregnant <laughs> um, at like my dream company, I get this job and everything. It seems great. I come back from, I didn't even have a maternity leave because I hadn't been at the, the firm for three months before I had my son. So I'm going back like six or eight weeks postpartum. And I just, I didn't hit a wall, but I just realized like how much or how many things I did for appearance sake. And I think that was the beginning of the awakening was realizing, oh, maybe I don't actually want to live in this neighborhood or maybe I don't want to, like, why do I feel bad that I don't drive a certain car or that I don't appear a certain way? And that was the beginning of me kind of waking up and realizing that, oh man, I really am appearance focused. Like, what would it mean if I wasn't? Like, what would it mean if I dug into being an overachiever? What would it mean if I dug into perfectionism and the role that it plays in my life? What would it mean if I started writing about all these insights that I'm getting all of the time because I cannot be the only one? Um, and so, so around my, when I turned 31 was like, it like all started to crystallize and eventually that evolved into the working mom dress. Wow. That was a lot of words. <laughs> so much good stuff. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Thank you. Okay. I want to know when you found out you were pregnant with your youngest, you would have been what? Math is not my thing. How long postpartum with your first? You so I was, I think, 10 months postpartum. So that was like the other part of 2016. Like there was so much nonsense that happened that I like can't even recall it all. So I was 10 months postpartum. I had just stopped breastfeeding the month before. I, to be honest, like we can't even figure out like when it would have happened because we like weren't even in the best place in our marriage. So we were like, it was a complete and total shock to both of us that we were pregnant. I literally had a dream. I was sitting at my desk at work and I could not, rem I had a dream I was pregnant 
And then I was like, oh, I just put it out of my mind. And then I'm sitting at my desk at work and I'm like, I really don't know the last time I had a period. Like, I don't know because, you know, you don't have a period when you're breastfeeding or it's weird. And then I told my best friend and she was like, maybe you should take a pregnancy test. I'm like, ha ha ha. Yeah, I'll get to it when I get to it. And so she came over. She's like, have you taken one yet? I was like, no. She's like, okay, I'm stopping by the dollar store and I'm getting, get, bringing a test. I was like, okay, this is still really funny. And so <laughs> I took the test and it was like, immediately the lines were like dark as hell. And I was like, oh shit. So I called Travis and I was like, don't make any stops on your way home from work. We got to talk. So yeah, I was 10 months postpartum, fresh off of like job changes, postpartum, depression and anxiety, losing a parent, grief, all of these things. And then surprise. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe this is good. Like maybe I'm going to be birthing this child and like they're going to be under a woman president. And then like the next, <laughs> like the week after I find out you know, the election of 2016 happened. And so that was another reckoning. Like, what am I doing bringing my child into this shit show? Yeah, it's just an unbelievable amount of things to consider happening right. in your life at that point. Oh my gosh. Okay, so what was postpartum like for you that time, the next time? It was a lot better. I do feel in reflecting on it now, it was so much more it was more rushed because I knew I wasn't going to have the same amount of time with my kid. And then right as I was preparing to go back to work, hurricane Irma came and was predicted to hit directly hit Tampa. So I have a new baby. He was maybe two months old. And so I had a new baby. I'm getting ready to go back to work. Like, trying to gather all these supplies like when you when hurricanes hit like you go to the grocery store you get all the stuff it's kind of like feels a lot like a pan like what this time period has felt like and so I'm preparing for all of that and we decided to shelter at my in-laws house because we at the time we lived in a 1940s wood frame bungalow surrounded by oak trees so we were like "Mm, perhaps that's not the best option to shelter (laughs) there And I took all of my milk from my freezer to my in-laws and they pretty quickly lost power. And I lost like a hundred ounces of milk right before I was scheduled to go back to work. So that was pretty devastating. Um, But so postpartum was better in a lot of ways. It's also was kind of a blur because I essentially had two babies still. Like my oldest son wasn't even two. Um, So it just felt like it went by really fast and like we were in a better rhythm and it seemed like, well, at least like we know what the hell we're doing now, sort of. But Asher has just always been different. Like he does not, he, he was like up four times a night to nurse. He is always been an early riser. He is just himself. And he has been that way since the day he was born. So like just even getting used to like a completely different personality has been very interesting. (laughs) 
It is very interesting, isn't it? The difference between, yeah, two kiddos in both of our situations. We each have two. Yeah, stark differences over here. So I get that. (laughs) I want to ask you, so this week that we are currently in is World Breastfeeding Week and you wrote about it on your Instagram page. And the headline of that post was that breastfeeding is an act of resistance. And I wonder if you could talk through that a little bit. Sure. So I always knew I was going to breastfeed my kids, always. And I would say things like, it's important to me because it's, you know, breastfeeding is new or breast milk is nutritionally complete, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what I wasn't really saying was that I know the history of breastfeeding and black women, especially in the United States, is that enslaved women were forced to be wet nurses in slavery or during slavery at the expense of their own children, at the expense of their own bodily body autonomy. And um, that legacy persists to this day with the low, lower breastfeeding rates for black women and like in some cases, stigmatization of breastfeeding. And so I knew that I, it was important to me to do that as an act of resistance, as a way of healing generational trauma. And like, even saying that out loud, it sounds really heavy. Um, And it sounds like a tall order. And it like, I, I like now saying it out loud is like, man, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself to do that. Um, But it was really important to me to breastfeed for that reason. And also being the first of my friend group to have a baby or have kids, um, it was important for me to be visible and vocal about it in that, honestly, it's your body, your choice, like whatever you want to do, like fed is best, like 1000%. But it means something to me that my friends or people that I'm not even super close to that I know from high school or just I'm Facebook friends with are like, Hey, I'm having this issue with breastfeeding. Like, can we talk about it? Or can we talk about preparing? Or can we like, you just give me your experience. Like that means something to me. And I think that's probably why I'm so open about nursing or marriage issues or being a working mom. Um, I think it's important that we have those conversations. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in your IG profile at the working mom trust, it says, part of it says that you share stories that help working moms ditch mom guilt, curate careers they love and create their own definition of having it all. So I want to talk to you about mom guilt and what that feels like for you and how that shows up in your own life. Yeah. Uh, first, mom guilt is total bullshit. I feel like it's a construct to make women feel like they're not doing enough, they're not enough, that they're they should be doing more. Like it to me, it just feels like a should. That's what mom guilt feels like to me. Um, and it's stupid. Like I just really wish we could just cancel it like forever. It is so dumb that mom should feel guilty for existing or for working and literally providing for their kids to have experiences or have a roof over their head or 
what, or just because they want to freaking work. So yeah. that's mom guilt is just, it's nonsense. It's so, if we can just cancel it today, right now at this moment, I would be so pleased because it's, to me, it's like, well, who profits from this? Like somebody is profiting from the notion that mom should be guilty and they should be doing more. And when I say profit, it's not even necessarily monetary. It's like the patriarchy is profiting from this because it takes the burden off of men from doing whatever it is that they should be doing. Yes. Yes. I think I have read this before on another podcast episode, but do you follow Toy Marie on Instagram? I don't, but I can. I should. Oh my goodness. I probably should be. You're going to be all over her page. So Toy says about mom guilt, quote, let's stop calling it mom guilt because that's bullshit and not actually a thing. Let's start calling it what it really is, internalized patriarchy, capitalism, and white supremacy, which has conditioned women to believe that once we become a mother, our pleasure isn't ours, our joy isn't ours, our creative force isn't ours, and that our time isn't ours. 100% sold. I'm in. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna start following her right this instant. (laughs) You'll love her writing. So, okay, still though, your kids are three and four. You have obviously done a lot of thinking and questioning about all of this bullshit, as have I. And still, how do you notice this showing up in your life? So, pre COVID, like when things were, when outside was open, I would find myself, especially on days, because my husband works every other Saturday, he is an essential worker, he works in healthcare. Um, I would find myself feeling like this is my one day that I'm on. This is my one shot to make the days like so magical. And it was, first of all, it was stressful for me and it was stressful for these kids because they don't necessarily want to be doing all this stuff. Like, it's like, why am I trying to do all of these things? Like, why do we have to like go and do music class? And then we need to have a PM activity. And then like before, like we need to have a, you know, maybe like a, a fun lunch. And then you know, like all that, like, why am I trying to do the most when like literally these kids would be happy. And what I've seen in this COVID world, they are happy going outside and me turning on the damn hose. I do not need to be running all over town like a crazed woman in order for them to be happy. But my feelings of guilt were like, well, they're in school all the time or They spend time with, like, I work, and so, like, the days that I have just me and them, I need to do, like, we need to go to the park, we need to go to the playground, we need to do this, we need, like, no, we actually don't need to do, like, 90% of those things. One thing would be fine, and, like, here's a novel idea, turn on the TV, which I, I struggle so hard with screen time, like, that is also like a way that mom guilt probably manifests for me is like, I'm like, okay, if I can just turn on this one show and like have the parameters set and like, don't turn them into little 
you know, because they do get feral after a lot of TV. I've noticed that. But maybe stop being so hard on myself with screen time. Like, it's probably fine. Like, how much screen time did I get growing up? And I'd like to think that I'm still a functioning adult most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You are. (laughs) Yeah, I totally, totally get it. All of that. Yeah, I think it... Yeah, it sneaks up on you in some subtle ways that for me, it's when I notice that I am trying to control situations Mm -hmm. within the parenting, whether it's just me trying to control the kids if I'm one-on-one with them or trying to control the scenario of parenting when Randy and I are parenting together. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, there's some shit here that's about more than, you know, making sure they go to nap or bed at this certain time or only watch that one show or whatever it might be. There's a lot of opportunities to question on why you're doing the things you're doing and what that is even rooted in at all. I feel you on that. I feel you on the control piece because I feel like I'm also trying to control their experience. Like I want them to be happy all the time. And that's just not even fucking realistic. Like I'm not happy all the time. So why would I put that pressure on my little people who literally their prefrontal cortex isn't even fully formed. So like there's no controlling any experience for them. Like you could do everything right. And then the sandwich is cut the wrong way and they're like, lose their damn minds. So like, why am I trying to control their level of happiness? Why? Oh gosh, I know. I know. A mutual friend of ours, Sharin Eskindani, she has been on the podcast a couple of times. I know that you have attended a conference or an event with her, which I'm so jealous about because we have amazing. yet yeah, we have yet to meet in real life. But she on the podcast one time said something that she had learned from a mentor of hers saying that life is really made up of 50% like easy light, fun feelings, and 50% hard and uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. And wow, yeah, it is. And that has helped me a lot in parenting in these moments too. Also feeling that like codependent pull of trying to manage everyone's experience. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And manage emotions. I, I find myself trying to manage other people's emotions, like in my marriage with my kids, just like, let that burn with the rest of the bullshit of 2020. <laughs> Absolutely. We don't need to take that on. <laughs> we do not. Okay. So I want to read you something that you wrote on the working mantras. And that is this. So often mothers are treated as martyrs. We put the needs of our children and partners first, and we get the prize of second runner up. Thanks for the bouquet. With all due respect, fuck that shit. The gift of Corona time is that it has illuminated all of the ways that I continue to put people, places, and things over my needs and desires. What would be different if you treated yourself with high self-regard? I love that. I love so many things about this. So on a similar note, how do you notice that martyring shows up for you? within motherhood or within your marriage too, within your relationship with Travis? So in motherhood, it's just like little things, little moments of joy that I'm not allowing myself 
it could be something as simple as I'm trying to think of like a good example of being a mommy martyr. Like any time that I'm like, no, I'm not going to do this thing. I know I'm not going to go out with these friends, go to brunch. Like when brunch was a thing, I'm not going to do that because like I only have a limited amount of time with my kids, but like, I really need those interactions with friends and adults to feel human. And it actually makes me a better parent and less resentful. Um, And also asking for time away. Like there are times where I'm just like, Travis, I need a few hours, like, or I just need a day to do whatever the hell it is I want to do, go to a coffee shop, um, read a book, like just get out of the house, like do just get not have to be anybody's mom or wife or like be trapped in roles. Like I just need to be Raina for a second. And he's really good about honoring that. In marriage, like we have had a very interesting year and like navigated a separation and are navigating a reconciliation. Um, But I think what I have found is that I have, like it, it is so easy for me, like my personality to get lost in my partner and acquiesce to the things that they want to do and lose myself in the process. And so this year I've really had to, it's like a second awakening of like, oh no, what is it that Raina actually likes to do? Like, who is she? What, what interests her? What, um, how does she foresee being in a partnership moving forward? And I think you know, when I talk about shaking tables, it's like, I had to have a moment where I was like, you know, I feel like we're roommates and I'm super not into that. Like I, like we're best friends, but like, I don't, I'm not really feeling a romantic partnership here. And, you know, I have, I have a best friend. So if you're not willing to be a romantic partner and like, these are the terms of that partnership, then like, we got to figure something else out. And that always scared me before because I think that women are taught that their self-worth is really their proximity to a man. And like the worst thing you could do is, especially if you have kids, is be divorced because it's like, who wants to be with a, who wants a single mom? Like who, you know, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, for me, it wasn't even about that. It was like, I don't care if I have to do that. Like I'm, but, but like in getting to that decision, it was like, well, I don't want to negatively impact my kids. If like what we decide is ultimately that we should not be together in a romantic partnership. And this is like, it's just crazy to talk about because I have not talked about this before. And I have not talked about like what the like part two of what this marriage in this partnership looks like, but it really was like, I need a partner who's going to, when I write something and there's like 2,700 people, let's say who are reading it and you're not reading it, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Like I need you to be interested in the work that I'm doing. I need you to show up for me. If I'm speaking somewhere, I need you to be in the front row cheering me on. Like, that is the type of partnership that I'm interested in. And I'm not asking for too much when I say, 
and I've been thinking about this and I've been kicking this around a lot. It's like, I can slay my own dragons, but the reason that I am in a romantic partnership, the reason that I have a partner is like in the off chance that I don't feel like slaying my dragons, like this is what I need you here for. Or like to co-fight slay the dragons or whatever the case may be. Like I need a partner in this thing. And if I'm going to be slaying dragons on my own, then I'm going to be on my own. So like having those conversations as uncomfortable as, as they have been, like, I think it's ushered in the next phase of my marriage. And it also has like burned down the old ways and allowed us to reimagine a new way forward together. And I think a lot of, you know, like Travis and I met when I was 22, I'm 32 now. So it's been, I'm, I'm a different person at 22 than at 32. At 22, I was just happy to be chosen. I'm happy to be asked to dance. I'm happy to, to be want that you want to like, see me that way at 32, bro. Like this is a mutual choosing. I'm not just happy to be chosen anymore. This is a mutual thing. And if we're mutually choosing each other, these are my conditions. Yes. All of this, every word, every word. These are all conversations that, yeah, I've had in my marriage too. And like you said, we've been in this relationship a long damn time. And the version of me that shows up in this relationship now is not who that was even a year ago or eight years ago when we got married or 17 years ago when we met. Mm -hmm. And I think that people sit and stay in relationships being miserable for a very, very long time for a variety of reasons. And for people listening in, you might just be at a point where you refuse to sit in that any longer. And uh, that's allowed. I want to read this other thing that you wrote that is in relationship to this. And then we'll talk about it a little bit more. So you said, I've shaken the table quite a few times in my marriage. Each time things change for a bit. More often than not, I don't receive what I ordered. I don't dare send it back for fear of making a scene. Consistently crappy service on loop. Somewhere, someone is starving for what you have. Be grateful for the scraps and scrape your plate. And I think that that is the message that we are fed so often as women, particularly. If you're in a decent relationship, an okay marriage, well, like, good. You should just shut up and enjoy that. And that's all a bunch of bullshit, too. Mm-hmm. So, so you've shaken the table, which I love the analogy of and, like, what that, like, the fire that that makes me feel inside my body. I really love that. So uh, now going forward in your relationship, in your marriage as such, how, in what other ways do you feel different? I feel a lot more liberated. And Glennon Doyle says there's no one-way liberation. So me shaking the table, it wasn't like, I need you to do all these things and get in line in order to be with me. No, this was like a conscious like decision on both of our parts to decide 
what does that mean? What does that look like? How am I going to show up? Like, is it possible for me to do that? Because there's no, nobody's locked into this. Like there are no internal locks on the doors. Like you're free to go. This is not a hostage situation. Um, And so just being able to be honest in a way that I have not ever been able to be honest in my relationship, like for fear of stepping on toes or hurting someone's feelings or, you know, putting my partner's needs in ahead of my own and maybe trying to manage his emotions a bit. I had not been willing to say like, this is not good enough. I need something better if we're going to be in a romantic partnership if not like let's just be best friends and that's that and I think that having that conversation like it liberated me but it also liberated him enough to say like I don't want to be your best friend like that's not good enough for me like there is no scenario where I think that I just want to co-parent with you and see you with somebody else or so to me I'm like okay that's a choosing like you're choosing me now this is an active thing it's no longer passive roommates it's we are deciding together and so the I feel a lot more confident in my marriage that not only that like this is not fragile like we can upend things and burn it down and like rise again and create something new and better like that's what I feel is like new and better like it's a new paradigm it's a new chapter it's a shift and so I just feel liberated I just feel free I feel confident I feel really strong in my decision to shake the table Um, And I think, honestly, that it was the best thing for our marriage, even though it felt like the scary thing, like being brave does not feel good. It does not feel good in your body. It's fucking hard. To me, it was like, but it just wasn't, it was no longer easy to just be like, well, like, okay, like we get the kids to bed and like you watch your show and then I'm in the bedroom and like, we're just coexisting. Like, what is the point of this? we don't have to do this as married people. Like we could just be best friends. Like if that is the arrangement you're looking for, I'm open to discussing this. So just that in its of itself has been liberating. And I want to touch on something you said about, um, you know, you should just be grateful is we have set the bar so low for partnership with men and like that's the context I'm coming from because I'm in a heterosexual partnership in that if the man is not physically abusing you or cheating then everything is permissible and even the cheating it's like you could just forgive so it's like why is the bar that low that we literally have no expectations of these men like that that's basic shit that is not anything that should be so why why can't we ask for more than that absolutely and you raising like i my assumption is that you call them boys like two mm-hmm. boy children and who knows how they'll identify later the in tiny life, tenants but, yeah the <laughs> tiny tenants yeah i think about this so often raising 
what we currently call a girl kid and a boy kid is like what I want them to see modeled in our yes. home. I was just about to get into this. And that was like the breaking point for me. It was like, I do not want my kids to think that this is a example of like what, like I do, I would not want this partnership as it currently is. Like I would not want this for my kids. And that was scary. And to me, I was like, okay, yeah, we definitely have to have some conversations around what that looks like. Yes. And I think that Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, there were some major moments in that book for me, in that book for me too, in considering, I think in one spot, Glennon writes something about when she was in her marriage with her kid's father, looking at one of her daughters and asking herself, would I want this marriage Mm -hmm. for this girl, for my child? And that she wouldn't. And uh, yeah, that's something that I ruminate on often too, in thinking about, like we're talking about modeling this love and this partnership for them. And like so many other things that go along with that. What is romantic love? the importance of language, what does partnership look like, how do you love each other, what does it look like to be a dad, and what does it look like to be a mom? It's just a whole lot of things. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, has your relationship to honesty changed quite a bit? Yeah. Yeah. We have, like, had to be brutally honest. Um with each other about like the circumstances that led to a cer- the separation and like navigating what all of that looked like. And so, you know, every time we talk, it feels like just be honest with me, even if you like, you don't have to manage my emotions here or like I can manage that myself. I'm going to take the burden of doing that myself. I'm not going to, abdicate my responsibility as Travis says that's what like I'm not going to abdicate that responsibility to you anymore and so to me yes like honesty has just been very freeing in our relationship to be able to say hard shit and know that that's not going to be like a breaking point or like our relationship is so fragile that it cannot withstand the truth mm-hmm And can we just talk about how damn hard it is to be parenting young children and be married to someone? Have you read that zero to three, ages zero to three are the hardest time on a marriage? It is so challenging. Yes, it's hard. And this is like, I get frustrated because Instagram is like, yes, rah, rah. I feel like it's, I'm open to people disagreeing with the things I'm saying. Facebook is a little bit harder because I have family and friends that follow me. And so that post like really pissed people off. Um, And so, and like friends who like don't ask me directly like what happened, but like they might ask someone else who might be in the know, like as opposed to, to coming to me, which like feels weird. But it's like, there is a feeling that like, I shouldn't be talking about this. 
I should not be talking like this is something that should be private. But why? It's like everybody thinks that they're alone when their marriage is in a shitty place. And everybody has been there if they've been married any length of time. It is not like a perfectly curated square pixel and square of just like my husband did this or like my wife is so great or like donuts with dad muffins with mom like that is not real life like we need I'm not saying that everybody needs to do a post about me or like me but like can we be fucking honest that this is hard like this is really hard like why are we perpetrating that this is anything other than difficult. It makes people feel alone and it makes them feel like they're doing something wrong. When in reality, like if it feels hard, you're probably doing it right. Yes. <laughs> That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it is just, it's just the truth. And, uh, yeah, I think that's why that post that you wrote about shaking the table was, I mean, I've had conversations about it with people in my DMs being like, Raina's post, I just about <laughs> fell off my chair. <laughs> I'm like, yes. So I was reading through some of the comments to that post you wrote, especially on Facebook, some people reading through being like, you shouldn't have shared that here. That is too much, which is like the line we're gonna, we're gonna hear that forever. We've heard that in so many aspects of our life up until this point. We're too much of something, any which way. There's no right way to do it. It's always gonna be too much of something for someone. And I think I was reading one of your responses that was, you're, you're silencing me, a woman, a black woman in your case, you're silencing me still, which I've written about in this post when you tell me that I shouldn't have shared this year or it was too much of my sharing here. It's so, it makes me so ragey. Me too. And can we talk about the fact that I've shared pictures of my ass, pictures mm. of me breastfeeding. I've talked candidly about going to therapy and having a psychiatrist and being on Lexapro, but the line is somehow that I said that the service in my marriage was crappy and that perhaps other people want to take me out to eat. Like, like that's the line. Like really? Like I can talk about all those things. I can show my body. I can do all of these things, but I can't talk about marriage being hard. <sighs> That's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's just preposterous. My favorite was like my one of my sisters, like we've since talked it out, but she's like, you're pulling a Kanye. She sent me this long text. She's like, you can ignore my calls, but you're pulling a Kanye. And I'm like, triggers are just other people's shit, man. And like, the people that are triggered have their own shit. They're coming at it with their own perspective and they don't like that. What I have done has made them feel a certain kind of way. And so like, that's not, again, it's not my responsibility to manage people's responses or reactions or, you know, even I, I like the, the 
other subtext that we're not talking about is that I've somehow emasculated my husband by talking about this. And that really pisses me off because it assumes that I have not discussed this with him, that he's like, I did not get his consent, that masculinity is something that can just, this is why men are so fragile because masculinity can be pulled away at any time for the stupidest of reasons. And like, me, a woman talking about like, listen, my husband is not, this is a rough season. I've asked for some things and he's been unwilling to do them. So we're trying to navigate a new way forward. Why is that emasculating it? It's only emasculating if you think it is, or if you think that I shouldn't be talking about this, or um, I should just think that my husband's job is to go to work every day and then come home and do whatever it is he does. And that's not to say that he's not a great partner and he's not a hands-on dad and he's not all these things. Those things are true. But again, that is the minimum. That is the minimum. I'm asking for more. And like, this will be a mantra. It is safe for me to ask for more from anything, from all my nouns, all my people, places, things, it is safe for me to ask for more and I'm gonna be okay if those people, places, and things cannot do what I'm needing them to do. I'm not gonna just stay there because they're there. Yeah. And what I hear from you and feel from you a lot is this deep trust in yourself and knowing that you're going to be Okay. And I feel like when you have that sense of yourself, then it feels a whole lot safer to ask for more than just this existence. That's right. That's right. And I think it's just like this year has literally been me surrendering. Like I took a promotion and realized that it was not a good fit. And like, it really triggered this tailspin into depression and anxiety and I had to ask myself questions like well who am I if I cannot perform in this job like what does that mean about me it literally means nothing other than that this is not a good fit for me period it doesn't mean that I'm not worthy it doesn't mean that I'm not competent it doesn't mean anything so what does it mean that if I how can I get to the place where I can just surrender this job thing and just be okay doing anything because my worth is not tied to my work. And so like, it was the same shift with my partnership. It's like, I love Travis. I like being partnered with him. I think he's a great dad. I think we have an okay marriage, but I'm, I'm not getting what I need and I'm willing to surrender this. I'm willing for it not to work out because I know I'm going to be okay at the end of the day, because me being partnered or me being married does not define me anymore. Just like a job is not going to define me. Just like my kids being perfectly behaved is not going to define me. Once we can get rid of all of like, if this, I can be worthy. Like that's the beginning of like figuring out who we actually are. Yeah. There's such freedom in that that can exist. Okay, so wrapping up here with you, what, if anything, do you feel like is your work right now or your focus for your own self right now? My focus for my own self is, 
I think trusting myself and that has been, you know, at the beginning of the year, I didn't trust myself to be quite honest. Like I knew that that promotion was not, not necessarily feeling aligned, but I forced it because it's what I should want, should be doing. I should want this. And had I trusted myself and my intuition, I would have just stayed where I was and been perfectly fine. Um, I actually took, when I was on leave from work, I took a break from the working mantras. And after George Floyd died and like all of this unrest, excuse me, I had a strong feeling that I needed to come back and I needed to start writing. And literally the week, the day that I came back and wrote something, my Instagram just blew up, like in ways I could not have imagined. A huge parenting educator shared my, something I wrote, Scary Mommy shared something I wrote. And so like I went from 200 followers to 2000. So like that was an example of me trusting myself and not, you know, like I was really worried about posting while I was on leave because I was like, oh, well, people really think I'm anxious and depressed if I can like formulate a post. And at some point I just like had to say like my abundance does not come from this insurance company or, or this job. Like I need to be able to trust myself that whatever my intuition is telling me to do is right. And it was absolutely right in this case. It was right about me sharing about my marriage when I have people who I have not literally a boss that I hadn't spoken to in years was like, I've been married for 23 years and I've been miserable for 17 of them. Like called me on the phone or wanted me to call her to just talk about that. Like that's how I know I'm doing something right because yes, I do have a village of people I can talk to about my marriage. Absolutely. Like there are people that like I gave some lukewarm tea, not even like piping hot twinings tea. This was lukewarm tea that had already, you know, all I said was I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm we're reconsidering this entire thing. I want to be transparent about this because I can't be the only person. And so in me, like I have people I can go to for that type of thing, but what about the people who don't have somebody they can go to and why can't we talk about this stuff? So long answer to that is it is safe for me to trust myself. And that is something I need to continue to lean into because even before this call, I'm like, oh, am I sharing too much? Am I doing too much? Like, I can't control, like, people reaching out to Travis. I can't control, you know, perceptions people have of me or that people think that I'm, like, doing it for the gram or maybe doing it for likes or doing it for clout or doing it to be inspirational TM when I'm, like, it literally has nothing to do with that, anything to do with that. It's like coming to me and I like have to get these words out somehow. And I feel a pull to do it. That's beautiful. Thank Keep you. doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Very last thing. Any other advice or words of wisdom or mantras that you might have for the moms listening in who are also maybe feeling this pull to shake the table in some way in their lives and they are feeling scared to do so. Being scared is normal. It's normal to be scared. Do it scared. Do it respectfully, but do it scared. Do it anyway. It is 
it is safe for you to shake the table. I see so many people who are like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about my job? And you know, this, like, you need to tell them what time it is. You need to tell them this is what's going on in my life. I'm parenting, I'm homeschooling, I'm doing all these things. You got to cut me a freaking break, period. And like, that's what this is going to look like. And this is what I can reasonably do. And if that is not possible, let's figure out another way forward. What are your expectations? And here are my expectations. Either how can you get to my expectations? How can we meet in the middle? Like, it's safe for you to shake the table. If you are feeling that you are pulling more of the load in this stupid ass time we find ourselves in, it is safe for you to ask your partner to pick up the slack if you have a partner. If you don't have a partner, it is safe for you to consult your village. It is safe if you have the means and you're tired of feeling like you are constantly fucking cleaning and you have the ability, hire somebody. I will be hiring somebody to help me clean because I cannot manage living with anxiety and depression and raising kids and working full time and having this Instagram account and all these things like cleaning is on the bottom of my list of things to do. And I like to have a clean house. So like, that means I'm just going to have to ask for help and people can have whatever opinions they have about it. So it's just, it's, that is the main thing. Like it is safe for you to shake the table. It is safe for you to ask for more. And it is safe, even if it's not the result that you want, at least you have the information to create a new and better way forward. I love that you said that. I think that will stick with me is to do it scared. And another point in this conversation, you said that brave, having these brave conversations, like that might not feel good starting, starting to have that conversation. But when we get through it, all the muck and the mess, like what's on the other side of that, or even in the middle in in between, it might feel better than just sitting in this spot that also feels gross right now. You're not going to die from being scared. You're not going to die from being embarrassed. You're not going to die from any of these things, but you might die from sitting there too long or internalizing things that you don't need to internalize or, any of the, like any of the, like, why is anxiety and depression a thing? Maybe because you're swallowing something that needs to be let out or you need to acknowledge reality and like shift reality to fit your needs. And so none of that feels good. It feels scary as hell, but you won't die from being scared. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a treat. It was fun. I'm energized. I love you. And I am so delighted and pleased to be able to share this time with you. I love you, Raina Boston. We'll have you on for part two. I am sure of it. Sounds awesome. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 